Today, I'm lucky enough to have caught up with Martin Helweg, Chief Executive Officer of P&O Maritime, and his colleague, Benjamin Neal, Head of Health, Safety, Security, Environment and Quality. Good day, gentlemen. Thank you. So do we. It's now four years since the acquisition of Topaz Energy and Marine Limited by DP World. Please, can you comment on the process of integration and how the Topaz vessels complement those in your fleet? Thank you, Paul. It, it has been indeed four years since the acquisition of Topaz by DP World and then the subsequent merger of P&O Maritime and, and Topaz into P&O Maritime Logistics. There's a few points in that. A lot of things have happened in the world in the last four years, and the merger seems to be only one of those small things. I think we are past the merger now, and, and all the integration has been done. But it was, frankly, quite challenging because within six months, we were hit by COVID, which meant that we work from home. And it's, it's just more difficult to integrate businesses when you can't get together in the same room. But we are way past that now, and we function as one company within the DP World Group. And there, you can say to your question on how do we fit in and how do we complement for us, we enable the movement of energy and trade through maritime innovative solutions. And we do that to benefit economies and, and communities around the world. And that's really regardless of whether we are in our short sea segment, whether we are in our towage segment, or whether we are in our offshore energy segment. And we focus a lot on how do we fit into the supply chain and how do we add value to our customers in that supply chain. And in DP world, you have very large infrastructure company that is a leading provider of smart logistics services and the enabler of global trade. And here we fit in very, very well in both supporting the infrastructure of trade and making trade flow, but also in our enabling of making energy flow and helping communities and economies around the world. Turning to the energy markets, oil and gas prices have led to tremendously strong markets in the Middle East. But sustainable energy is also a priority as we tackle the climate challenge. Please, can you outline some of your initiatives in renewable energy? I will start with the first part of the answer and then hand it over to Ben for the second part of the answer. Okay. I think our view and, and certainly my own personal strong view is, is that when we look at the energy markets, we all know the need and the necessity for making a green transition. We also know, and recent geopolitical events have highlighted that very large sustainability and growing sustainability element to the energy conversation, but there's also an affordability and a security issue. So therefore, for us, the challenge is how do we make sure that we make a transition and yet we ensure that the world have the sufficient energy and a sustainable energy over time. And that means both working in oil and gas and renewable and then being an active part of the energy transition, and that's the part I'll leave for Ben as, as he's heavily engaged in that and, and running that from our side. Thanks, Martin. Hello, Paul. Um, so at P&O, we've just launched our new decarbonisation pathway. We're very proud of in the fact we've gone from rather than a top-down corporate strategy, it's, it's a bottom-up approach from all of our, involving all of our business units around the globe, our operations, our technical teams, and we've set ourselves some extremely ambitious targets that also align with our parent company, DP World, in that we aim to 
reduce our emissions by 28% by 2030. We aim to be carbon neutral by 2040 and to be net zero by 2050. If we look at how we're going to do that, first, if we look sort of internally, certainly the short-term objectives are going to be around optimization as, as we're not planning any new builds in the offshore sector in the, in the near future. So over the next six years, it's going to be focusing on what we can do in our operations. And this is why with our new decarbonization pathway and involving the crew, involving the teams within the business units, we believe that this 28% reduction is certainly achievable. Also, our parent company, DP World, is part of the Merce McKinnon Muller Centre for Zero Carbon Shipping, and we're actively engaging with local governments. We find that we operate all around the globe in many different countries. Certainly, some countries are more advanced and mature on their decarbonisation journey than others. We work with those ones that, that are still on the way up. We work with local governments, port authorities, to align our decarbonisation journey. In terms of what we're doing in the offshore, we're actively involved. We have our MCVs that have been supplying equipment to the wind farms in the North Sea, Germany in particular, and helping meet the German goal of 80% of its electricity coming from renewable sources by 2030. We have a couple of vessels working with the LNG production unit in Mozambique. And obviously, we also have our Hannah Christina, which is our LNG-powered vessel operating in Norway. And just to add to that, if you look at our offshore fleet, we've moved approximately over the last few years, 20% of our assets from traditional oil and gas operations into the renewable sector. And I've supported also in Taiwan, the uh, renewable energy production of, I think it's 2.4 million homes in Taiwan. In addition to what Ben is saying, we've moved quite a lot of our fleet into supporting the renewable energy sector. Right. Okay. That's that's interesting. Um, now, you mentioned there, Ben, that you're not considering new ships in the oil and gas offshore sector. There have been reports that you are considering some possible orders. Are you in a position to comment more on this, please? I will take that question, Paul. There is a few fundamental parameters that still has question marks. So you can say the energy sector is doing better now, and we've seen that in the offshore shipping segment and companies are starting to do better. But we're not at a point where that industry is reinvestable. And for that to happen, we need to see the rates stay at current levels, go up a little bit, and then over a longer period of time. And then the energy companies need to accept taking longer contracts. So that's one element which is not entirely present yet. So we have not ordered new ships because we need to see some of those components for our offshore segment. We need to see some of those components change or have a sustainable over a longer period of time. Then the other part, which many shipping, not only in our segment, is battling with is we don't know what the future fuel is, whether it's methanol, ammonia, um, hydrogen, and then there's a number of transition fuels in LNG and others. And everyone who is in shipping knows that you build a vessel and and it will have a commercial life of 15 and maybe a technical life of 25, 30 years. So if you build a vessel that needs to last for at least 15 years, and you know that in 15 or in 10 or even in five years, the fuel of the shipping is going to be different, but you don't know which one it is, it becomes difficult to make commitments towards it. 
And you can solve that obviously by by having hybrid solutions, which I think shipping segments are looking at and making them, for instance, methanol ready. But there's these two conditions is that we simply, the commercial parameters are not quite there yet. Um, and then the other part is, it's not 100% clear what the future should look like. And I think traditionally we've committed for 15 years at a time. And I think the world is ever changing faster and faster, which means that we need to look at how do we work and operate in a world that changes as fast as the one we're living in. So I think the previous models will not necessarily apply. And therefore we need to be a little bit creative when it comes to the future fuels of the world, which is why amongst others that we're testing different fuels has been mentioned on different ships. Well, you've mentioned the transition of, I think you said 20% of your fleet into renewable energy. And offshore wind is, is another booming sector. There is, some people say, a shortage of installation and service vessels in key regions. What are your views on this, please? I will start on this one, and then I think Ben can um, will, will jump in. First of all, there is a shortage, and there is a shortage also on investments. The commercial parameters is not only my opinion. You can see it industry-wide, so no one is building in the offshore. When it comes to the renewable they come from a different background than the traditional energy companies like oil and gas. They don't always give us long contracts. And we see significant underinvestment in the shipping segment for the renewable sector. In my opinion, it comes down to these commercial parameters in terms of what is the rate and what is the duration, security of revenue. So what we've seen so far is a massive influx from the existing fleet going over to renewable, which is exactly what we have done. We've moved the existing assets into the renewable and found an application for them there. And then you're seeing new investments obviously coming into the renewable, but not at the pace that it follows the ambitions that have been laid out by the various different jurisdictions and countries around the world. So I think there will be some sort of awakening in the next few years that, that we're simply not investing to keep up with our ambitions when it comes to the transition towards renewable energy in the various different economies. So to recap that, yes, there is a shortage of vessels, but it's a shortage of very specialized vessels that require new investment. And I think the commercial parameters need to change slightly before you will see that investment coming in to the degree that is needed. And then, then I'll leave for Ben to comment further. Just add on to what you said, Martin. I think we welcome any opportunities to support the green energy transition. And as I said before, we've got the MCVs transporting the modular units for offshore wind. And uh, as Martin said, we we are in Taiwan as well. We've got the, uh, we've done three installations and we have our cable laying vessel, the Topaz installer out there, um, helping to power 2.7, 2.8 million homes in Taiwan on a 5.7 gigabyte energy project. Okay, well, coming back to the Middle East, where you're talking from today, regional project cargoes offer fantastic potential in the region. Please, can you talk about your initiatives to strengthen supply chains, such as new services in the Red Sea, for example, and project cooperation with other cargo uh, owners and movers? Yes. So, so first of all, when, when we look at our parent company, DP World, then, then they're an end-to-end logistic provider which we benefit greatly from in, in, in the examples that you mentioned, and I'll go into a little bit of detail. So what we've done is we took some of our vessels, specialized vessels that are very shallow and can go into ports 
to births and other vessels cannot. And, and what that means is that between DP World and Unifeeder, which is also the second largest feeder company in the world, and also a DP World company, um, we were able to increase the connectivity and therefore reduce the congestion between the uh, Port Sudan and then the Port of Jeddah, which meant that we actually minimized and, and reduced the transit time of containers. We call it micro-feedering because it was a very niche little service, but it actually helped tremendously our, our customers. And as a data point, we were able to reduce the turnaround time inside the port that suffered in Port of Sudan greatly from, uh, from congestion by 80%. And we did that by sitting with our parent company, DP World, our sister company, uh, Unifeeder, analyzing that supply chain. And then by deploying these specialized assets that are very shallow water, we were able to go to a part of the port that was not congested. Hence, we could then alleviate the problems that our customers had in long waiting times and so on. So that's one example. Another example where we're looking at the supply chain is is. We have been working with, with Mammoth on, uh, on building a, an island resort in uh, Saudi Arabia as part of their 2030 vision for, for their sustainable development. And again, we used our, our MCVs for transporting module uh, hotel rooms, um, which is prefabricated into the resort, would help the customer in a much better project planning and, and get them much, much closer to delivering on their 2030 vision and both examples for me is where you take and you look at the value chain and the supply chain of your customer and you see how can I best add value and then you design a solution around it as opposed to taking the vessel and the vessel is the starting point. Then being part of DP world, we always start looking at the supply chain and we always look at how do we best add value and then we choose the vessel and the solution, the operational solution from that to make sure that we deliver value over time. Thank you. There's another initiative that you have, uh, which I'd like to ask you about. Can you outline details, please, of the Supply on Demand initiative um, and how it will benefit clients in the offshore arena? Yes, I can. The Supply on the Demand initiative, there's many reasons why this is a good concept. We're trying to change the business model of the offshore energy where traditionally you would have designated vessels that go between the shore and the offshore energy installations. And what we're trying to do here is taking a very traditional shipping model and applying it to it where you pay for the cargo. What that allows is that a sharing of asset and a far more efficient use of energy and assets and capital. And our studies and some of our, our practical implementation show that for instance, when we look at our offshore vessels, the deck utilization is normally only around 65%, whereas the under deck utilization is around 35%. Anyone who's in shipping know that in order to be efficient, you need to be above 80%. And by sharing the asset and by charging per cargo instead and sharing the asset between the energy companies, we can see that we can deliver the cargo 30% faster using 40% less energy, that's 40% less emissions. And it's actually reduced sailing distances. And it simply comes from the very natural explanation that with a designated vessel, it doesn't drive efficiency. And Paul, the example I will use is, is a very simple UPS or FedEx example. The current offshore model works in a manner where the energy company has a designated delivery truck. 
That means that delivery truck takes a parcel and it brings it to Paul's house. It doesn't go to Martin's house and it doesn't go to Ben's house. When it's done delivering to you, it drives back to the facilitation center, the, the depot, and it takes another parcel and then it goes to someone else. So what we are suggesting the supply and demand is a very traditional shipping model and can be best described by something like FedEx is that we simply load our vessels with cargo for multiple customers, which means we don't have to go back and forth between the energy installations at every time, which will greatly reduce our carbon footprint, the efficiency. And it also means that on average, we can deliver much, much faster. So for me, this has to be the way forward. And now it becomes a little bit technical, but when you look at the energy transition, I think it's a necessity to change the business model. Right now, the CO2 in the current regulation that we burn on our vessel counts for our customers. It does not count for our, it counts in our scope three and in the customer scope one. The problem is we're the one who have to make the investment in changing it. If we change to the supply and demand, we will move the CO2 to scope one for us and scope free with the customer. And you need to place the problem to where the solution is. And today, the problem of the CO2 of the offshore sits with our customers, but we are the ones who have the solution for it because we are the ones who have to make the investment. So both from a business model and from an economic point of view, it would make sense to change to the supply and demand for us and for our customers. From an energy transition, it's an absolute necessity because if you have a misalignment in the structure and the accountability for CO2, then you will not get to a solution that is sustainable over time. Gosh, fascinating. What a challenge. My next question is, uh, is, is also on decarbonization, but it relates to the workboat fleet, which comes under the spotlight. What steps are you taking to reduce the carbon footprint of vessels in your service fleet, both in terms of design and operational initiatives, such as weather monitoring to increase uptime, real-time links with shore for voyage optimization, maintenance, and other similar measures? At P&O, obviously being a global company, operating in 19, 20 different countries around the world, as I said earlier, these, these countries, are at, some of them are at different levels of maturity on their own decarbonization journey. So when we were developing our decarbonization pathway, we have to be flexible. We don't have luxury to say, okay, we're going to go all in on methanol or we're going to go all in on ammonia. We have to have that flexibility in terms of the alternative fuels. So when we were developing our decarbonization pathway, a lot of time was spent looking at the the current availability of um, alternative fuels in the countries that we operate in, both now, but also looking at the alternative fuel landscape in the future within these countries. So we've adopted this flexible strategy. So it might be a case if we're operating in, in Saudi Arabia that we will be looking at hydrogen powered vessels, but our vessels in Paraguay and Australia will be looking at biofuels um, and similarly for our, our tugboats um, you know we might be looking at batteries we've also developed some concepts i'll give credit to conrad in our operations team who's always looking at sustainable alternative fuel vessels and we looked at what we could do with our current fleet so we have our, our mcvs which have a lot of potential that there are newer vessels and we looked at um well we've not potentially but we developed a concept 
for one of these vessels to be turned into a cable laying vessel, um, which also had dual fuel capabilities for methanol and also battery power hybridization on board. And then in terms of our operations, as I said, our short-term objective for, for 2030 is to reduce by 28%. I'm a personal believer that the current offshore business model is not very supportive in both our clients and our own decarbonization efforts. And so by looking at how we can better improve our operations and, and better utilization of our back deck space, you know, we can look at potentially savings of up to 20 to 60% in emissions just by operational improvements. And then there's things like the easy low hanging fruits like LED lighting on board, changing of lube oil filters, tinting of windows. These can all help with saving um, even little bits of fuel that all goes a, a long way. Training for our crew is also paramount just in, in better uh, fuel efficiency on board the vessels. And then it's collaboration. So my background's all safety and I, and I believe in our industry, we are very transparent and there's a lot of collaboration when we have a safety incident and lessons learned. You know, if, if there is an incident, we share this information with our, our clients, we share this information with industry bodies like IMCA, like ISOA, so that the lessons learned from these incidents can be used by other organizations to hopefully prevent the incidents happening elsewhere. And I believe we need that same transparency and collaboration when it comes to, to decarbonization. You know, you'll see it from our, our social media posts at PO Maritime. We're not secretive with our decarbonization ideas. I believe that there's no confidentiality in, in decarbonization. So when we have a good initiative, albeit training or something simple like turning the lights off or something maybe a bit more complicated like particular filters being changed, we want to share this. We want other companies within our industry to also learn. And hopefully, you know, we will begin a trend where they'll also share their initiatives. And moving forward, that will help the industry as a whole to decarbonize and reach all of our, our objectives. We have actually mentioned the scope three emissions a little earlier in the conversation, but I'd like to ask you about cooperation with clients on this issue um, of scope three emissions, which is really a, a fundamental uh, requirement for decarbonisation. All begins with breaking down of the silos and, and having those initial discussions with our clients. And we are actively engaged with the majority of them because our clients want to reduce their emissions. We want to reduce our emissions. Um, we want to reduce the emissions of our suppliers as well. So it's, it's obviously what we're doing at the moment with our suppliers is we are having those discussions, similar to what our clients are having with us. We are asking them, we're beginning to let them know, you know, we are going to be taking this seriously, certainly in the, next, in the short term, in the next couple of years. So we're having these discussions with them. We're asking them, what are you doing? What's being done? Do you have these policies in place? Are you measuring your emissions? And also technology. It's, it's central to our own operational strategies. Um, we're, we're partnering where we can, as Martin said earlier. While we don't have a large R&D department, we do have a very large, diverse fleet. So we are very open to new technologies and new ideas 
being used as, as I don't know if they'd like me saying this, but as guinea pigs, really. Um, we have the diverse fleet and we have the opportunities to, to try out new technologies. Right. Well, thank you. That's, that's very interesting. But finally, I'd like to ask you about uh, perhaps the biggest challenge that shipping as an industry, as an entire industry faces, and that's the concern about finding enough suitably trained seafarers and the fact that a, a career at sea for many young people is really not very appealing. There's also the issue of the rapidly changing landscape, which we've discussed in earlier points, um, decarbonisation, new technologies, new machinery systems, new fuels, remote maintenance, real-time links with shoreside teams, and a whole range of other new technologies. These all add to the human element challenge. Uh, what are you doing in terms of recruitment, training, motivation, and perhaps most importantly, retention? I will start off on, on this one. I, I think first and foremost, this, this is a very real challenge. And I think for the shipping industry in general, and, and I think as, as a shipping industry, we've not been good enough as an industry to underline what it is we enable and the importance of the infrastructure that we carry, whether it's the infrastructure for the flow of energy or the infrastructure of trade or the purpose of, of how we support and are integral in economies and communities around the world. And we see as a shipping industry that there's multi-challenges in this. We have difficulties in attracting young people and we have difficulties in attracting women and, and having a diverse workforce in our vessels and in our companies. We do this in various different ways. One of them you can say is we work very closely with the local communities, with educational institutions, we would make sure that, that we train people. We have special programs for, for women uh, that to attract them and give them careers within shipping. So we spend a lot of time and effort in promoting and carrying young people and women through our programs and educational institutions to give them a very good and hopefully long career in shipping. And, and that is, I think, very integral in attracting young people, both highlighting what the purpose is and, and what they're helping, enabling, and then making sure that they see longevity and, and challenges in, in their career ahead. We do a lot on our training. Um, and then when it comes to the new changing technologies, I think, especially what Ben is doing on AI and on, on safety, we, we are we're moving the new technologies into various different aspects of our business. I think no one can any longer be hesitant or have any doubt that the technology is developing faster and faster and those changes are here to stay. And that helps our business and, and what Ben has done on AI, I think is, is, is absolutely fantastic. And it helps our attraction of, of new people coming in. Ben, I don't know if you want to share a few things on, on what we're doing on, on the yeah. AI side. So before the AI, I know we are also actively trying to improve the communication with our vessels. Um, and when I, when I mean, what I mean by communication is internet speeds, because this obviously for the crew working offshore is very important now for keeping in touch with uh, their families and, and people onshore. And with that, we have our AI safety assistant which is now powered by ChatGPT4, which allows quick 24 seven, 365 days access at any time for any of our crew members to ask any questions about safety. 
in um, any language. In any language, yeah. It means any crew member of any nationality can ask a question and get an immediate response in any language. And I, I believe that this is initially right now, it's just for safety and sustainability, but we do see plans for it moving into things like maintenance, plan maintenance system to help as a tool to bridge that communication gap that sometimes we have with our crew. Also, in terms of keeping retention, we now have a, a new crew welfare manager who started in the past six months, whose focus is on, on improving the, uh, the communications and the welfare facilities for, for our crew offshore and onshore. And I think this is a testament to the, to the focus that it's, it's now placed. We do see that there is a challenge both in our industry and beyond in getting the young crew into positions, but also to retain it. But um, with our focus on technology, on improving communication and the focus on the welfare moving forward, we believe that we have the resources to tackle these challenges. Great. Well, that's uh, very, very interesting. I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you, gentlemen. I hope we can meet again at some stage before too long and see how some of these initiatives are moving ahead in the future. So thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. The pleasure is all ours and, and we would love a chance to reconnect and share successes and learning from our journey.